This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Today I want to talk about the four vows. We mentioned that I was going to talk about this last week, and then, or was it last week? Yeah, last week. I couldn't, I was not feeling well, and so um, had this saved up for today. So these four bodhisattva vows that we take. Before we get into the four vows themselves, I want to start with a quote by St. Augustine. Um, who said that, he said, who can map out the various forces at play in one's soul? A person is a great depth. The hairs of their head are easier by far to count than their feeling and the movement of their heart. I think it's a good reminder, I would say, that the, the Buddha Dharma, this practice that we engage in, is not about knowledge, it's not coming to understand something, but really more about opening, opening our hearts and, and really opening to them, to our vastness. Maybe, maybe not even our vastness, it's a little, maybe a little too personal, uh, maybe just opening them to vastness. And, and I hope that, my goal, my hope is that that will come through today as we talk about the four vows and their purpose. Before, again, before we dive straight into those, just a word about chanting in general. We chant the four vows, uh, but um, just, we just did some chanting, of course, and just a word about that. If you haven't already begun to take up chanting or liturgy practice at home, I would encourage you to do so. Many people report that they um, hesitate to incorporate liturgy at home into their home practice. Um, one of the reasons that is a common reason is people feel self-conscious about it. Um, chanting out loud, especially at home. Um, if that's your reason, I think it's a good practice then for you, especially, <laughs> you know, um, anytime. We're self-conscious about something, and we all know what that feels like. Anytime that that arises inside of us, that is a, that's an opportunity for practice. There's, there's your gate. There's your Dharma gate. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. I guess corporate speak would be lean into that, <laughs> right? There's, we can all think of, I'm sure, sort of the Rolodex of things that we are self-conscious about are kind of f flying through the mind right now. We, we go towards rather than away. Not as a kind of, I gotta conquer this, I gotta, but, but you know, it, it is 
really an invitation to stretch, stretch ourselves, to stretch what we think and who, who, who we think we are. You see? My teacher used to do this. I mentioned this on a Tuesday night. I mentioned this here and there. Maybe, you know, assigning me practices here and there. If, if I ever hesitate, you say, okay, that's it, do that. <laughs> um, I, if I had been more savvy, perhaps I would have mentioned things that I was already, you know, that I wanted to do. didn't do that. So, you know, aside from the self-consciousness point, though, chanting is, um, is a way of aligning body, speech, and mind. Aligning our actions with our words and our thoughts. So anytime we have an intention, a vow, um, a purpose, it can be helpful to take it out of, out of the sort of cloudy territory of thought and into the world, whether that's through writing, whether that's through chanting, whether that's through just saying something out loud, it's a powerful practice. It's, it's, it clarifies, has a clarifying um, nature to it. It, the same is true with uh, prostrations or bowing practice. You know, um, we have, uh, we all have at times very strong intentions in our life, very strong hopes and aspirations uh, and such. And um, uh, if, if we leave those, so to speak, untouched, internalized, without, without embodying them, they dull, they dull. They become um, one more thing that just kind of, uh, we, we, it's kind of like one of these persistent thoughts. Anybody have persistent thoughts? <laughs> um, one of the reasons they come up is because we don't do anything about them. They just sit up here and, and they don't get a voice. Um, and with bowing, it can be, when we feel, for example, grateful, it's an opportunity to embody that gratitude, you know, to, to put, our, put our whole being into it. Each, every, every feeling state, every, every feeling state has an, a, an impulse. Um, we talk about unhealthy impulses, but we have these healthy impulses, and much of the time we hold back from those healthy impulses. And so bowing can be a way of expressing our gratitude, our thanks, um, even saying to ourselves, you know, so grateful for this practice or whatever it might be. So these four vows, bodhisattva vows that um, uh, we take just to keep them fresh in mind, let's do it. You know, just, just say it. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. 
the great way of Buddha I found to attain. You know, in Chinese, these Bodhisattva vows are sometimes called, uh, they were called the four, um, the four great broad vows. It was shortened to the four, four vows or the four great vows. The broad and great. Um, and, and these are some of the, some, a lot of time, uh, the, these are the first teachings that we encounter when we come to a center like this. Um, I, I, I can't help but sometimes think, I wonder what so-and-so is thinking as they come to a sit. Uh, they have never been here before. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the sit, they're vowing to save all sentient beings. <laughs> right? It's like, what the hell did I get myself into? Um, so, but they are one of the first things that we encounter. And they are encountered in every Mahayana temple every Zen center. And we sometimes say them multiple times a day. As we practice, they often can recede from the mind. They can become just one more thing that we say, you know, with not much power to them. So I think it's, in my estimation, it's good to examine these things, to bring them to the forefront. What are we really saying here? And why? For newer students, like I said, um, when we encounter them as newer students, they don't function. These four vows don't function as vows. They, they um, in a sense, you know, it's not something that's understood. It's not something that's taken on with a lot of forethought or consideration. And why would it be, you know? So what happens is that many people, when they hear these four vows, immediately start asking the question, you know, well, how do I do that? Is it impossible? And this is one of the most common questions that comes up for people, is how is that possible to liberate all beings? How is it possible to attain the great way of Buddha? And I think, you know, as thinking about the impossibility of this, these vows, it was reflecting on this, and it's very close to the impossibility that many people feel in the world situation. You know, the poverty. Uh, the, 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 the seeming intractable... Uh, impossible gun situation that we're now, we've been in. What do we do? It seems like there's just no way forward, doesn't it? There's, what do we do? How is it possible to get beyond them? Global climate change. Racism. Just to name a few. And so <clears throat> I found that people tend to go to one extreme or another. On the one side, it can be basically, um, well, no way. I'm out. Nothing I can do. I'm sure we all feel that at some point. 
And the other side is, hell yeah, I'm in. Roll up our sleeves. Let's do it. I think both of these sides have problems. <laughs> yeah. I think we, with the I'm out, I think we can understand why that would be problematic. But with the hell yeah, let's do it, there can also be problems with that. Anybody that's in the helping profession knows how that can be problematic. So many people willing to dive in, but yet don't know how to temper their work don't know how to approach helping in a way or working towards something without burning out, without finding themselves reaching their limits mentally, physically, emotionally. I, you know, I, as a therapist, I'm shocked at how many therapists have never been to therapy. And they expect to be able to help people without having done the work themselves. It's not that they're, that that's, um, it's, that it, it, they don't know what they're doing. They might be very highly trained. But, but the point, I think, is to remember that we need to recenter in ourselves to find our uh, touchstone, to read something to return to without spinning off, without burning all of our energy away. And I think the other point is, is that sometimes, even out of the best of intention, we can do more harm than good. It is very easy to do more harm. We see this in all the issues that I mentioned, current issues, how much good intention there is in the world, but how misdirected it is, right? how, how misguided it is, how blind it is. Talk about the second or the third vow, endless blind passions, or the second vow. You know, the, the blindness of our intentions, of our efforts can often derail even the most well-thought-out or well-intentioned people. So, it's also worth noting that some people um, who come to practice don't have an impulse to help. This isn't talked about much in Buddhist circles, but I think it's worth talking about. That sometimes the only people we're interested in is helping is ourselves. Mm. And that's okay, you see. We, we sometimes need that first. So when we encounter the four vows or this bodhisattva ideal, it can often stir up this great guilt. Like, I don't have that impulse. I'm not there yet. And that can be often be discouraging to people. So if that's where we are, we want to just be okay with that. We don't need to be there. That comes with time. I have lots of stories, my own practice in that in that way, but I won't I won't go into those now. 
But my experience is um, that this impulse, uh, which in Buddhism we call bodhicitta, which is this impulse to awaken for, not just for ourselves, but for the world, is something that germinates over a long period of time. And as time goes on, we should, if we're to continue on this path, examine the nature of bodhicitta, of bodhisattva, of vow. You know, this path is a path of examination, really. Examining our own minds, our own relationships with others, with this world, what is our place? And in doing so, we begin to take responsibility for our own minds. Turning the light inward, as I often talk about, turning that light inward over and over again. Knowing that tendency to, to turn outward, that natural tendency to look for satisfaction for our peace, our happiness outside of ourself somewhere. So a bodhisattva is a being who ultimately takes responsibility, complete responsibility. That's what a bodhisattva is. Not just for their own lives, but having seen really ultimately uh, that there is no division point. You see, they have seen that there is no dividing point and therefore cannot help but take full responsibility. It is, in a way, a choiceless responsibility. There's no other choice, because there is no self and other. In one way, you could say that a bodhisattva comes to the place in their life where there's really nothing more important to do than to work for others. The, the classic Buddhist image is one of ferrying all beings across to the other shore. I don't know if any of you heard of this before. This, and in fact, it, you know, Prajna Paratmita, it says gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate bodhisvaha, which gone, gone, gone completely beyond to the other shore. Awake, rejoice. So going from this shore of all this uh, stuff, right, to, uh, to the other shore of nirvana. Robert Aiken Roshi, who was a contemporary teacher, he died in the early 2000s, I believe. He said, in talking about the uh, Bodhisattva vow, he said, I've heard people say, I can't recite these vows because I cannot hope to fulfill them. Actually, Kanzeon, who is Kuan Yin, or the Bodhisattva Compassion, the incarnation of mercy and compassion, he says, weeps because she cannot save all beings. Nobody fills these great vows for all, but we vow to fulfill them as best as we can. This is our practice. And 
And so a few weeks ago in Keisha, I talked about that you know, we have these ideas about awakening and how they have been often through images and through stories we hear. We have these images of sort of eureka moments <laughs> where the light bulb goes off and you know, joy just goes, wahoo! <laughs> you know, we're free and we're done and it's all wonderful. But, you know, as I said before, it is a joyous process, but it's also one that is filled with grief. There are those tears. And because we are letting go over and over and over again, letting go of our patterns of reactivity, of our habits, sometimes of our hopes, of who and what we thought we could be, of who and what we thought other people would see us as. And so as we do that in this process of clarifying through practice, there can be these tears of letting go. And the fact that we can't save all beings. And so this bodhisattva ideal, this bodhisattva has one foot, she has one foot in this absolute nature. Always planted this touchstone. No time, no space, no beings to save. And one foot in this world. I can't help but help. She can't help but make an effort. Still attached in a sense, you see. Still attached to helping. It's okay <laughs> to be attached to helping. And in a sense, that is our task, to see that in ourselves. That we don't have to let go. This, this is kind of pernicious thought that awakening, that Zen practice is somehow going to help us beyond our humanity, right? Somehow get beyond being human. It's often a very secretive, curative fantasy that we have. We will become sort of these ethereal spiritual beings. Zen, that's not Zen. We are fully human. So that is our task. Our hearts are large enough to hold everything as it is. And also knowing that we still have impulses, attachments, Flaws, limitations. And so when we think about the vow to liberate all beings, we have, we're, you know, called, we're really um, called into a very uncomfortable space. And it should be that way. It should not be a comfortable space. A space where our notions of size and of capacity of what we can and can't do, of what our society can and can't do, are called into question and challenged. It's, it's one of these rare joys um, 
No, Aaron, that's the wrong, wrong word. One of these, one of the um, very discernible joys of being a teacher is to see students of Zen to uh, begin to get frustrated with the clothing of who they are. Uh, the tightness, it becomes tight. <coughs> you know, they begin to outgrow their habits, their limitations, you know. And it's a painful place and you want to go in and go, come on, man, <laughs> you know. But you, you can't, you can't. It's, uh, you know, you just have to wait and see what happens. It's very much like, um, well, I was thinking about how when kids grow, how fast they outgrow their clothes and they begin to, you know, what a wonderful thing to see as kids grow. You know, they, they can't fit into that nice little outfit that you had bought them a couple years ago. And we know if we're, we're feeling that way in our practice, that we're right on track. So practice should be a place of growing pain, is I guess what I'm trying to say. It should be. Um, Trungpa Rinpoche, Trungpa um, Chogyo uh, Trungpa said, taking the vow is like planting the seed of a fast-growing tree, whereas something done for the ego is like sowing a grain of sand. Planting such a seed as a bodhisattva, as the bodhisattva vow, undermines ego and leads to a tremendous expansion of perspective. And so again, these vows become a place of tension. It's an invitation to widen our perspective. What is possible, really? And what is impossible? What, is, what, the, what does that mean? We use these words habitually. I hear that from people. That's impossible. It's impossible. What does that do to the mind when we repeat something like that over and over again? It's impossible. I can't do that. We can't do that. It'll never happen. What does that do? So the four vows come to us from, um, as I said, the Mahayana tradition, Mahayana tradition from China. Um, they most likely evolved in the sixth century in China. And um, they're really rooted in the four noble truths. You know, that life is suffering, that there's a way out of that suffering through, or excuse me, that suffering is caused by clinging attachments, the push and pull of our minds, but there is a way out. And the way out is practice, really. That's what it boils down to, examining our minds. The eightfold path, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right meditation, right concentration, right effort. Did I get all eight? Right here? Did it? Did you see yeah. Right here? Yeah. 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 
So the first of the four vows is to liberate. And um, sometimes it's translated as to save all beings. Um, now, the, the word save here is pretty problematic, I would say, especially for those of us that have grown up with pretty strict um, religious uh, upbringings. In this culture, we have that undertone of, of uh, puritanical kind of things. Um, and, and it's also just problematic because how, how many times, even in our own recent history, has our country uh, gone in somewhere and tried to do something and made it worse? <sighs> Screwed it up. Yeah. We'll just import democracy here or our values there. Or thing. And course we think we've got all the variables you know it kind of reminds me of this project that's been proposed here and there I've mentioned it I think a few years ago this project that scientists some scientists are considering maybe they're even implementing it by now of eliminating mosquitoes through terminator genes of breeding mosquitoes where they if they mate then their offspring won't be able to mate have you heard of this kind of thing um, it's like yeah are we really thinking this through? You know, who doesn't want to get rid of a mosquito, but come on now. Can we really see? This is, this is what we see in practice. We begin to see how complicated the world really is, how little we know. We, our hubris gets taken down a notch. I mean, I'm sure all of you have had that happen through your kids. <laughs> through your jobs and through your life experiences we get taken down notch after notch good right as long as we recover good but good so this word save we have to be careful with this or liberate we have to be careful with that so what does it mean to liberate all beings Bodhidharma said the most essential method to liberate includes, which includes all other methods, is beholding the mind. The mind is the root from which all things grow. If you can understand the mind, everything else is included. So as I've said before, what would the world be like if we simply liberated people from our own bias? our own judgment, our own, the way we box people in, see them through our history with them. He's the kind of person that does this. She's always like that. How often do we do that? Of course, we've all developed those tendencies I mean, through evolution, prejudice, bias. It's not unuseful, that has its purpose, we can't and shouldn't completely let go of that. But to understand that that's one, the, the human condition is interesting because we can see our evolution, we can see these patterns, these purposes, uh, and not be stuck in them, you see. 
That's the wonderful thing about being a human being is we are conditioned beings, but we are not aligned to those conditions. So our job as practitioners is, is to see the place of evolution of these mechanisms, to see how they act in our own life, how they still are in operation, but also see and acknowledge that we have the capacity to do something about them, that we are not just victims. So to liberate all beings in a sense is very doable, to liberate them from the cage of our own minds, jealousies, false views, resentments. The sixth ancestor, Hui Meng, said, good friends, the beings in the mind are delusion, deception, immorality, jealousy, malice. The states of mind like this are all beings. Each of you must liberate yourself through the, your own essential nature. That is called true liberation. So Hui Meng here is, is, is putting it back on us. We must liberate ourselves. He continues, what is, what is it meant by liberating yourself through your own essential nature? That means that beings in false views, afflictions, and ignorance are liberated by accurate insight. So here, you can see Huineng. He, um, he refers to many beings not as residing outside of your mind, but inside. And... and you know, this is the fundamental position of the Zen school, is that we are the, we hold the key, that each one of us must liberate ourselves. And, you know, do we need help? Yes, we do. Can we do it alone? No. This, this fundamental, then this is an important point, this, uh, this American tendency to think that we can go at it alone, this is, um, this aloneness, this feeling of isolation is so, um, uh, such a cancerous force in our culture. And it is the cause of so much deprivation of violence. I think of the gunmen who have, who have recently caused so much pain how much aloneness must have been in operation in their lives. So the first of the four vows is rooted in the recognition of suffering. All the teachings are meant to be reflections of what is true. And this is, so all beings without number I vow to liberate is a recognition a acknowledgement of our interdependence. You see, it's not it's not a heroic statement. All beings without number I gotta liberate. Lily Watson, who I'm sure you've heard this quote before, it's such a beautiful thing. An indigenous Australian said, "If you have come to help, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together." 
So it's so this first vow is is again setting us back into the truth of interdependence. That you and I are not separate. And so in Buddhist terms, the, our role and the role of the bodhisattva is to allow. Okay, it is to allow um, other beings the space. Um, to and actively provide the space, not just allow, but to actively provide the space um, so that they can liberate themselves. How that's going to look in each one of your lives is different. How are you providing space for others to work with their own minds? You know, so many people in this world are just consumed day after day with keeping body and soul together. They're sort of at the, what in psychology they would call kind of at the bottom of Maslow's pyramid, right? Just trying to keep it together. And for those of us who have more space, our job is to provide others with that space to the best we can, the best we can. It's such a tragedy in that way that they don't have many, so many people that need it, that most need it, don't have the space to do it. It's a kind of a catch-22, right? Because it is often the condition of one's mind that dictates, that leads to their inability to keep a job, to maintain relationships, to find education, to find love, to find support. And so in my own thinking about politics, you know, we we'll often talk about politics, but what it, what it means to be a progressive, in my mind, I find that what it means to me is that my job is to make your job easier, not to do it for you, to make, to make it easier for you to do it. Whatever way I can, And that's the role that this Zendo plays, that this community is supposed to play. Is it, it is a, a, a open field for you to work on your minds. And Zazen itself is a field. It's an opportunity. We can engage in it towards our own liberation, or we can perpetuate our suffering by sitting in zazen and ruminating, going back to the habits, the self-concern, the worry, the regret. You know, it's just a field. It's an open field. What we do with it is up to us. But the role of the bodhisattva is to provide the field. That's it. Rest is up to you. All beings without number I vow to liberate, endless blind passions, dharma gates beyond measure, the great way of Buddha. So each of these is a reminder of the enormity of the task. Very different from some of the very modest goals that we set for ourselves. You know, sometimes we need modest 
goals. We need modesty. We need reasonableness. We need doableness. You know, I just need to get through today. I just need to get through this conversation. I just need to get through this breath, through this moment. That's important because we need to take the pressure off ourselves at times because of the, uh, the, the, the very sick notions that are in our culture of how much we have to do and how much we should do. And yet at times we also need to have our systems, our sense of what we think we can do, we need to have those overwhelmed as well. So we need both. From a Zen perspective, it is our, those limits that we put on ourselves, that those boundaries that we outline ourselves so with that cause so much of our problems. I was meeting with a student recently who's um, feeling quite overwhelmed with her life. She was going through a difficult relationship and a loss of a job and increase in rent, which so many people are, of course, experiencing now. And most of all, she was feeling distraught by all the, the social issues in our culture. And, you know, this threat of overturning Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> and as I was talking with her, she began to choke up. You could see her eyes moisten and her voice began to quiver. And as I invited those feelings to come through, you could see how hard she was pushing down. You know, how afraid she was to let it come up. She said she couldn't let herself feel it because she thought she would lose control. Mm -hmm. it was, but at the same time, it was so clear how much anguish she was in from the holding, that tightness. She was so afraid of her feelings overwhelming her. And yet, you know, we just persisted for a few meetings, persisted. Water on rock, water on rock. And after about four meetings, you could see that she just decided to let it go. And the feelings came. And you could then see the tension drop. It was just, it was just so beautiful, this kind of very sad but joyous feeling came up inside of her. It's, it's this that these Bodhisattva vows are trying to put us in touch with. That the whole world is, is really trying to break in. It is trying to break in and show you. And we are trying to break out wherever we are. I don't know each one of you, but you know, we each have our places where we're stuck and where we feel that tension, that reservation. We are here to break out of that. And so, just to end, we can, <clears throat> we're almost out of time, we can 
meet these vows as a koan, you know, in their impossibility. It's, it's there that we can find a freedom because so many of us uh, go, oh, I can't do it. If it's impossible, how am I supposed to do it? There's your key. Just let go of limits. Let go of goals. Just work. Do the work, you know? Do the work. Let go of seeking. So we can get to the other vowels. <laughs> but uh, my hope is that next Tasha, it'll be a little shorter, I promise. We'll take up those other vowels. But for now, instead of talking about them, why don't we recite them? The four vowels. All beings without